one of the things that I'm interested in, the difference between nonprofit organizations and for-profit organizations. And so if you would just have to take a guess or assessment at running a nonprofit compared to running a for-profit organization, like managing one, leading one, what would be more difficult? Do you think it's more difficult to manage a nonprofit or is it more difficult to manage private sector for-profit companies? So we're going to do it by a raise of hand. So if you think it's, it's more difficult to manage a nonprofit company or organization, raise your hand. And if you think it's more difficult to raise a for-profit company, raise your hand. You guys drank the Kool-Aid or something. Like, why? This is not... Yeah. You have to raise money. Uh-huh. So your revenue streams are challenging to secure funding. Okay. So the incentives, like you can't hold money as the major incentive to motivate people. There's other incentives. Yeah, Maddie. For me, like, the most stressful thing when I think about is that you need to be ready to back up anything you do. You need to be ready to, like, justify anything that you do. There's not, like, that, like, oh, I just want to make money. It's, like, uh-huh. how are you helping? You need to defend yeah, you your, defend your actions. Yeah. So, and even, like, Orlando Magic, which just raised $23 million, people are saying, well, what are you going to do with that money yeah. now? And you need to, like, show very clearly. Whereas if you're a for-profit company and you had profits of $23 million, it's just like, well, you redistribute it to the stockholders. Yeah, Brandon. Bryce's first point in that, you know, there's a lot of other reasons of why it's harder to run a different company, whether that's nonprofit or for profit. Mm-hmm. And it's the people that go into that, that area that they're good at in those uh-huh. different ways of how it's easier for them to be able to run these different companies or to run these nonprofits because that's what their mindset is about. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm, I've learned through you know different years that different people have many different skills in different ways and think differently. So if you think for profit, then that's gonna be much easier for you to be able to run that company. If you think nonprofit, of be more creative, uh-huh. using your resources in more creative ways instead of so streamlined and how the business is run, then you'll be more successful in that way or another, and mm-hmm. it won't be stressful. It'll be more passion. Uh huh. Because of your your experience, but then a lot of people pivot from working for a for profit company to working for a nonprofit, or they go the other way. I mean, so, and I would say they're not distinct skill sets. You know, the big part is running an organization. Both have employees, both have budgets, both have marketing, both have a product or a service that they're producing or providing. So maybe specific industries, like you get your skill set within specific industries, but running an organization, I don't know if there's as much difference in the for-profit or, or non-profit, Hannah. And the other one of my classes, we have to read a book called Good to Great in the Social Sector. And, uh-huh. and like the first page, it talks about how like different skill sets aren't skill sets of a business or like business skill sets versus nonprofit, they're just like human skill sets. Mm-hmm. And so I found that really interesting because it's not like like relational. Is yeah, it? well yeah. just sort of like sort of like dis- it focus on the word discipline. Like being a disciplined person I see, yeah. following discipline in a job setting yeah. isn't a business characteristic. It's a human mm, I see. developed characteristic and I think that, that can be applied a lot to management and the fact that like it's not whether it's harder to run a for-profit or a non-profit. It's finding a person who like has this has the skill set to run either of them, uh-huh, uh-huh. and whether they would be compatible for both or just one. Sure. Yeah. And which class is that for? It's for inside community arts organizations. So the book is Good to Great, and what's interesting about that book is it was written for the private sector. The original book is 
from good to great. How do you take an, uh, your organization from being a good one to being a great one? And then the author was pretty savvy and he said, well, let's write basically the same book, change the words around a little bit and call it from good to great for the nonprofit sector and opened up a whole market of potential readers. But in a sense, the principles are more or less the same. So is there anyone in the room who would say, I don't know, I'm not convinced. Maddie? Well, I was for the, I still believe that's harder, but like just to make a point for their side, like for profit businesses have more paid employees. So if your business goes under, you're like affecting weight, but there's a lot more people's livelihoods dependent on you. Okay. Like obviously nonprofits. So but we would say equivalent, equivalent size companies. So like, we're the same number of employees. Oh. You okay. know, you think of like United Way or Red Cross, they are huge nonprofits and they have a lot of employees around the world. So, you know, if they go under, and even like with, it's Red Cross during, I think it was Hurricane Katrina, they hit a huge controversy over how they were allocating their funds, and it ended up hurting their donation. They had to lay off a bunch of people. So, I mean, I see what you're saying, that if the bigger the company, the more challenging it is, but that would be true whether it's a nonprofit company or a for-profit. Anyone gonna push back with, against the rest of your classmates and sort of say, I don't know, Mackenzie? I think that it would be harder to start a for-profit company, because I think it takes a lot more capital, um, and also, like, if you're trying to sell a product, you have to make sure that it's comparable or better than other products are on the market. On the market, I think there's a lot more competition. Yeah, it's competition. It's the brand of the employees, you might have a harder time working with them because a nonprofit, they're more passionate about the mission of what it is, and a for-profit, you know, they're going to work. They're just getting money, and they ask the time. They're not invested in what the company is about. So it might be harder to bring in all of those employees and and confine to the mission of what that for-profit is. Sure. Yeah. I mean, in a sense, hiring an employee for a nonprofit, like my wife, in a sense, she's passionate about the mission, and so she's willing to take a pay cut and even work extra hours and work over time and not really complain, whereas if this is just my job, there's no way I'm going to work overtime and not get it counted and paid for. So even, yeah, the, the competition for funding, and again, we use Red Cross as the example. Let's say I have $100 that I want to donate. There's a lot of people competing for that $100. You know, there's the local Mother Hubbard Food Charity, there's the National Red Cross, there's my church, there's my university. Everyone's competing for that $100, and only one person can get it, or, you know, I divide it up multiple ways and you get a much smaller amount. So there's, there's competition in that arena as well. There's someone back here. I was just going to say that it feels that it would be a lot easier to start up a not-for-profit just because, like, like you were saying, if you get if people get behind the cause, mm -hmm. like where a lot of people care about it, they'll just start throwing money to like start up and come like start up an organization. Yeah. Yeah. But if like with a for a for-profit, like if you had a product, a lot really okay, it's a lot in. harder. Okay. It's a lot harder to raise capital if I get you with company up and going. Yeah. And like to get people to actually give you money, it's a lot more difficult work out. Yeah. I'm going to push back and actually say that it's just as hard. But part of the reason I do it is because if I asked a room full of Kelly students what's easier, what do you think their answers would be? The nonprofit's easier than the for-profit. But the reason is, is that we tend to oversimplify the other. So, you know, you have a room full of private sector people who would sort of from a distance look at the nonprofit sector and say, well, you're just managing a bunch of volunteers. And whether or not your company succeeds or fails, there's minimal implications for it. 
you know, there's no profit that you're losing. Whereas if a for-profit company has a bad quarter, you know, that could cause stock prices to plummet and cause, you know, a downward spiral where the company goes out of business and they have all this capital that they've invested and it's just lost. But on the flip side, when Kelly people, yeah, look at the nonprofit, they have different views. And, and I would argue that both are equally complex. So, you know, basically your arguments were that managing a nonprofit, there's unique management challenges for a nonprofit. And I would say, actually, management and leading an organization is challenging across the board. But it's good to understand sort of how it applies in the nonprofit sector and how it carries over to the private sector. So with nonprofits, but also with private sector companies, you have this idea of mission, money, and management. And I don't think the book talks about market, but it's, it's it's also there that even if you're a private sector company, you have a mission. You know, like Google's mission, their mission is kind of funny. It says do no evil. But their mission is to, you know, create the best search platform in the world for internet searches. Or, or Facebook's mission is to, to connect people with one another. It's like, it's not just to make money. But there is sort of a, a mission behind it. You might not agree with the mission, but there's a mission of the organization. And with that, is money needed to see that mission become a reality? But that's also true with nonprofits, that you have a mission, and then in order to see that mission become a reality, you need money. And I forget who it was that said, well, you know, it's more challenging to raise money for a nonprofit to get revenues. The same is true for a startup of a private company. You got to get venture capitalists to invest in your idea and to come alongside you and sort of, you got to pitch your mission and your idea and get them to invest. So in the same way, as a nonprofit, you're doing fund development, you're really going to a venture capitalist, like a, a social venture venture capitalists saying, invest in me. This is a really good mission of an organization I want to start up. I want you to invest. So you're, you're sort of recruiting people to join your organization. But that's true whether it's a private company or a nonprofit company. And same with management. You're managing people. I mean, at the end of the day, you're managing people. Probably if you're the leader, you have a clear vision and drivenness for the organization's objectives. And the challenge is getting people to come alongside you to see that become a reality. And I forget who it was, maybe it was Brandon, saying that if you are working for a nonprofit, it's actually slightly easier to lead people in a nonprofit because their the mission is more compelling. And so people are on board because they like the mission. Whereas if you're a private company, a lot of times it can be, well, it's just a paycheck. And so, you know, if you say if you work for McDonald's and McDonald's wants to have, you know, great customer service, and imagine, you know, you got a 16-year-old working at McDonald's and you're saying, come on, let's let's put a smile on your face and like make people happy and make McDonald's the best experience ever. And the 16-year-old is just sitting there like, I just want to get paid and I want to get my free dinner out of this. You know, it's like the motivation is not there. And then the fourth one is the market where there is fierce competition in the nonprofit sector. So a lot of times we think, oh, well, competition is only in the private sector, but there's actually fierce competition in the nonprofit sector for getting volunteers, for getting funding, for even getting clients. So people are competing, you know, like you're providing this service to the community, but you're actually competing with other nonprofits and even some private companies that are providing the same services. So you're in competition with them. The other thing is, is that multiple stakeholders. And so with the nonprofit sector, can you think of like, who are some of the stakeholders, the, the people who have a, a vested interest in the success of your organization? Like who are some of the stakeholders that you can think of, Cameron? Who have donated money 
okay, so the, the donors are stakeholders. They're kind of, they've just given you a big fat check and they're like, okay, let's see what you do with it and how you're doing. So the funders, what other people are stakeholders? Carly. Okay, so the clients are another stakeholder. So the direct recipients of the services or the products. Other stakeholders that you can think of? People who would care about the success or failure of your organization. Maddie. People who like maybe sold a product that you're sold the product to fix a problem that your organization would just kind of get rid of at no cost to people. Oh, so can you think of an example? Like people who sell maybe like filters to clean water, but uh-huh. the organization is just to get safe drinking water to a city, then they probably don't want you. Okay. Or like the, the bottled water company yeah. who sells, Nestle sells bottled water around the world. And if you come in and say, well, we're going to set up this well that allows you to extract clean drinking water for free, Nestle might not be very happy about you. So a stakeholder isn't just a cheerleader or someone who wants to see you succeed. A stakeholder can be competition or another industry that it feels threatened by your presence. So that's another type of stakeholder. Any others? Yeah. The board of directors. Okay. The board of directors. And why would they be a stakeholder? Because they have a lot of say and put in quite a bit of effort uh-huh. to the organization and where it's heading. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know, I feel like they oversee a lot of the management and leadership in general. Uh-huh. So yeah, so if I'm the executive director of a nonprofit, I'm basically accountable to the board of directors. And the board of directors, you know, sit down with me on a quarterly basis and kind of do a performance review of not only my performance, but the performance of the whole organization. And whether or not it's keeping on mission, whether or not it has financial solvency as an organization. So that's an important stakeholder. Any other stakeholders? Yeah. I think that a lot of times the government is a stakeholder oh, good. because nonprofits are providing a lot uh, similar and as a manager leader of this organization, you've got to balance all these multiple stakeholders. It's also true in the private sector, and I'm not sort of trying to be this advocate for the private sector, but I'm trying to help you guys see no matter what industry you go into, so some of you might be in here saying, well, I'm not going to work for a nonprofit. Actually, all these things, most everything that we're going to teach in this class relates to nonprofits and for-profits and everything in between. And actually, my hope is that you would land somewhere in between because that's where the real fun stuff is happening in the world in terms of these hybrid organizations. But they all have multiple stakeholders that you're juggling. Another aspect of it is multiple bottom lines. So who was it that said differentiate? Was it Alyssa, single bottom line versus double bottom line? Well, so typically it's called triple bottom line. It's profits, people, and planet. So three Ps, profits, people, and planet. Most private organizations have to sort of juggle those three bottom lines because you can't just be an organization that's only for profit, but you have to consider how is this affecting the people or the community that our organization is in, and then how is it affecting our planet. And so the nonprofits are sort of further along in this game. They get that there's multiple bottom lines, but in the private sector as well, you're managing multiple bottom lines. And so a part of it is whatever organization you're running, thinking through, 
okay, what are the multiple bottom lines that I need to manage? And it's all complex. Nonprofits sort of get that intuitively. The private sector is catching up saying, hey, it's actually to our benefit to consider other things beyond just the profit of our organization. And then wicked problems. Have you guys heard this term before? So I think it's kind of a fun term. When I first heard it, it was like a very senior faculty member who says, I, I deal with wicked problems. And I'm like, is he trying to be cool? Or like, what are these wicked problems? But wicked problems is this concept of like intractable problems, seemingly intractable problems that one entity or one organization on its own will not be able to solve. And the only way that these wicked problems could possibly even consider being solved is through collaboration, through massive collaboration, international collaboration, cross-sector collaboration. And it's these organizations that are tackling wicked problems. So, you know, climate change is, is a classic example of a wicked problem. But even poor educational outcomes within the U.S. or declining educational outcomes in inner city schools or, or low resource schools is a wicked problem. Or crime and violence in urban areas is a wicked problem. That isn't just one company that's going to come in and solve it, but it's like, okay, we need a massive collective effort to address these problems. But it isn't just the nonprofits who are tackling these big issues. They're actually collaborating with for-profit companies and the government. And so, but I think it's just important to understand basically saying that nonprofits are a key player in this arena, but they're not the only players and they need to collaborate with other sectors. And so a lot of it, we want to sort of say, hey, it's really, really hard to lead a nonprofit. And it is, and it's challenging. But you talk to a leader or a manager of another private sector organization or even government entity, and they face very similar problems. They have a mission money management challenges. They have the multiple stakeholders, the multiple bottom lines and wicked problems that they're addressing. So if you really want to be an effective leader, it's sort of knowing how to manage these things and applying it to your specific context. So where this really becomes challenging is that in the nonprofit sector, ever since about 1980, there's been seismic shifts in the sector. Like this sector got really shaken up in the 1980s. And it's basically President Reagan who came in and said, listen, the way that the nonprofit sector is functioning needs to change. Because basically Reagan reduced the size of the government and outsourced a lot of these activities to the nonprofit sector and sort of gave more funding to the sector, but also gave them much more responsibilities. And in the midst of that, decreased the funding. So basically decreased the government programs and decreased the government funding to nonprofits, but basically said that state level, everything was going to be outsourced to the state level to address these issues. The federal government was going to be doing less programs and less funding of these things that should happen at the state level. It's basically a massive attempt to shrink the size of government. And what was hit was the nonprofit sector from both sides. More responsibilities were put onto their shoulders and less funding was available. There was also, so Sarbanes-Oxley was a, a thing that happened in around 2002, which was federal regulations on sort of reporting of finances and all these regulations for the private sector, but it also implicated the nonprofit sector. So all these new regulations where the nonprofit sector was like, how do I, you know, meet all these regulations and policies? And so they had to up their game in understanding federal regulation and policies that before they could just sort of slide under the radar and not really do good accounting practices or follow these strict procedures. But after the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, they were lumped in and saying basically, hey, if you're an organization and you have finances funneling through your organization, you need to follow all these regulations and guidelines. But think about it. If you're working for a nonprofit, you're like, oh, I don't want regulations. I don't want policies. Like, I'm a good person just 
just trust me, that doesn't work anymore. And then also, a shifting from grants to vouchers, probably the best example of this would be the school vouchers. How many have heard of school voucher programs? So school voucher programs, so the way it used to work was the government would just give money to the schools. So it's a charter school or public school, and that school would hire their teachers and buy books and all those things, and they would have the revenue stream of, of government funding. Well, when they switch, or some states have switched to the voucher system, so instead of going directly to the school, it goes to the parents. And then the parents decide what school they want to enroll their kid in. So there's now a marketplace of school options. So there's the local public school, the charter school, the private Catholic school, the Montessori school, and the parent can take take their voucher, which is like $6,000, and decide which school they want to give it to. And so what that does is it creates a competitive market. Because before, it was like, well, the public school is going to get all the funding, and so they don't really have to work that hard to get it, because it's guaranteed to come to them. But when they do the voucher system, now it's all of a sudden, they have to compete with all these other schools if they want to get my $6,000. And it is still controversial in that, because people are saying, well, that's pulling money away from public schools and it's going to some oftentimes it was like a religious private school and they're like well why are we funding religion you know why should this religious faith-based school get funding but it wasn't just with schools it's like with health services you know there was usually the, the public health clinic that would just get all the funding but now what they're doing is they're giving low-income clients these vouchers and they choose which health clinic they want to go to so like I'm low income and so I get this voucher of a thousand dollars to cover my medical needs, instead of going to the public health clinic, I might go to another clinic. The main thing that it does is it creates a competitive marketplace for funding, which is actually probably a good thing, but it changes the sector. Whereas before you just get one large grant, you just had to appeal to the government to get that huge grant. But now it's being decentralized to off these individuals. So when you hear about voucher system, another example would be food stamps. So it used to be the government would just give large sums of money to these large food distribution centers to give food to people, but instead food stamps, which is another form of voucher system, it's basically giving people money and then they decide where they want to spend that money. And so again, where the nonprofit sector used to sort of have a monopoly on these funding streams and you just had to get the big grant, it's changed. And it's mainly one, one aspect is this shifting from grants to the voucher system. What that also does is now you're competing with for-profit organizations. So that's probably the most infuriating thing is that the, the services that you're providing, the private sector has stepped in and said, well, we're also going to provide these services too at a low cost or a competitive price. And so now these nonprofits have to compete. So like the clean water programs or whatever, there's for-profit companies that are coming in saying, hey, we'll set up a well for you and it'll cost you this much. And they have good branding and good marketing. And so the nonprofits are like, oh, like, wait, we're the good people. We're just going to set up this well for free. It's not free. It costs you money, but you're doing it through fundraising and the private sector comes in and, and they're just competing. Yes, Maddie? I felt like in the first chapter, mm -hmm. it said that there was an increase in like money and visibility, but then here it says there's a decrease in money. So like there was more money circulating in the social sector. Yes, but not government money. Oh. So this, and this is specifically federal government money. Okay. The amount of federal government money dropped significantly, and the idea was, let's let the states handle their own needs or whatever, let's, let's decentralize off the states, or even get private donors. So the social sector has 
increasing amounts of money coming in, but it's not where it's coming from has changed. So it's the federal government has pulled back. State governments have sort of stepped in, but really it's private donors that are contributing. Is it stuff on the government though? Because if they give people vouchers and then the vouchers are used, then is that still like the government's money? Yeah, so one part, and it could be state level too, but the key thing with the vouchers, if I was the executive director of a nonprofit and I needed to get my funding, I could write a grant proposal to the state or federal government and get $100,000. Now I have to get a hundred people to give a thousand dollars, which makes it much more difficult. It's much easier just to get the big hundred thousand dollar grant from the government. And then with the voucher system, the government sort of said, well, let's make a competitive market and give a thousand dollars to a hundred people, a hundred clients, and let them decide where they want to spend their voucher. So it just, it makes it more difficult for me to get my hundred thousand, say my budget's a hundred thousand dollars, it makes it more difficult for me to get that now. So the implications for the sector is, and again, this is where it sort of hits home for most of you guys if you think about going into the sector, is that one, it's a blurring of the boundaries and identity crisis. Sort of how we talked about, is it the nonprofit sector? Is it the social sector? Is it the independent sector? Can I make a profit as a nonprofit? How should I organize my organization? And it's unclear where I'd fit on the continuum of nonprofit, totally for-profit industry. And with that is the identity crisis. I mean, almost all of you in your, me in your memo said, why does the nonprofit have such a negative reputation? Like, why is the nonprofit sector perceived the way it is in so sort of a, a negative light? It's an identity crisis of trying to figure out how do we sort of rebrand ourselves as the social sector and sort of get legitimacy and get respect from the other industries. So management is a shift in management to where it's, it's much more like running a business. And that's where I sort of go and say, both are difficult, but the main thing is, is that now you're having to do marketing for your organization, you're having to, to think about different multiple funding streams, larger numbers of employees and volunteer base. So you're basically, you're running a business and you think about how you run a business, that's what you're doing is running a nonprofit. And this is probably the most challenging, but also to me, the most exciting is that the type of leadership that's required to run a nonprofit has changed drastically. Like you used to just think, oh, you just need to have a passion and sort of set up shop and there's your nonprofit. Leadership, and again, I'll give you guys these slides so you don't have to write down all the things, but first of all, you need to be a professional. Like you can't be a slacker going into the nonprofit sector and think, oh, you sort of coast. But you need to be a professional as if you're going into any other industry. And also, you need to be entrepreneurial. Like you really need to think like, okay, this is a startup. Like I am starting up this new thing and how am I gonna get the ball rolling and it takes a very much of a social entrepreneurship mindset versus just well I'm gonna try and do something it's more thinking through your strategic plan and thinking through creatively how am I gonna make this organization successful and how am I gonna expand it to a larger scale also media savvy if you think of like all the different fund development opportunities it's, it's thinking through like I think about the ALS foundation the, the bucket challenge in a sense someone from the outside started doing these bucket challenge and the ALS was saying oh my goodness, like we have tons of donations coming in, but how can we sort of leverage that to even maximize and have this, this thing that's going viral, how can we capitalize on that? And a lot of it was understanding how media works and social media as a form of advertising and marketing the organization. Other stuff, politically astute, 
you know, knowing how to navigate the government and lobbyists and Congress to sort of mitigate some of these challenges with like the grants and the vouchers and funding streams. The last one is empirically astute. In SPIA, you guys have to take, do you have to take statistics? Is that required? So the reason why that's so critical is I guarantee you, if you're running a nonprofit, you're going to sit down with a potential funder. He or she is going to say, I want some empirical evidence of the effectiveness of your program. I want to see the data on why you think your organization is being effective. Now, you don't need a ton of statistics, but you need to be conversant in statistics to be able to show change over time or to be able to collect data and say, here's what our program does and here's what sort of the community was like at time one. And then at time two, after we've been in business for a year, here's the changes that we've seen in our community. And so you need to be empirically conversant to show, hey, we're using data to make decisions on where we're going as an organization and to assess the effectiveness of our organization. So when I think about it, being a leader in the nonprofit sector is incredibly demanding. I mean, the skill sets that you need, to me, in many ways, are overwhelming. Like I would, maybe I'll just, I'll slide into the to the private sector because potentially there's it's just less complexity. Both could be the case. Then also, probably the last thing would be seismic shifts, and this is more the upside of it, the positive stuff that I'm most excited about, are these emerging hybrid models. And so you have social enterprises, which are basically for-profit organizations that have a, a social mission, like have a social mandate. Like they want to do something good for society, but they're entirely for-profit organizations. And then you have these low-profit limited liability corporations. They're called LC, L3Cs. So you've probably heard of LLCs. It's sort of like you set up a private company. It's a limited liability corporation. Well, the L3Cs is you set up legally as a low-profit organization such that when you set up a private organization, all profits that you have have to go to your stockholders. With these L3Cs, basically you don't have to maximize profit. Like that's not a mandate of your of your organization. So they've created this category of corporations where your goal doesn't need to be maximizing profit. And then the third one is benefit corporations. B Corp is what they're called. The best way to describe it is it's a certification that you aspire to, sort of like organic. You know, when you go to the grocery store and it says it's organic, you kind of, as a customer, know, oh, this is certified organic, like it's met certain criteria. Now, that's not a government regulation. That's actually a nonprofit that is certified as being organic or like the school university that if it's LEED, L-E-E-D, means it's an environmentally sound building. Well, B Corporations is basically there's a certification body that comes in and says, hey, we've deemed your organization to be a benefit corporation, like one that's benefiting society. And again, this is super, super new. And so they're still trying to figure out what it is. I'm going to show a quick video on it because I think it gives you a helpful clarification. And some of you in the memos have said, well, what are these B Corporations and L3Cs and what are examples of them out there? And this video will give you a short sort of overview of what B Corporations are. But the important thing is to think about, okay, if I was going to start up a nonprofit, might I want it to be a social enterprise or an L3C or a B Corporation? So we'll watch this. We have a dream that one day all companies will compete not only to be the best in the world, but the best for the world. Others share this dream and have begun to turn the dream into a community. This community signed a declaration of interdependence and invited others to join them. 
I don't like this money-hungry industry of the for-profit sector, or there's a lot of problems with the, you know, the for-profits. Anyone see potential drawbacks or liabilities to this? Because it is a shift. I mean, in, in, in a sense, the push is, hey, we'll start figuring out how you can generate revenue from this service. And you're sitting there saying, no, I don't, I'm not interested. I just, I want to provide the service and I want it to be free and I don't want to have to worry about making a profit. Yeah. You might have people who question where that money's going or they might want it. Like there might be operational costs or something mm-hmm. that you're using that money for. And then you have all of those people like the board and your clients that might have different opinions uh-huh. on what the revenue, that stream is being used for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the extra revenue. Like, what are you going to do? And a lot of it, in most instances, is invested back in to the organization to expand its operations. But yeah, you, you when you have money on the table, people get interested. They have a vested interest in where that money goes. So, But I think it's something to be cognizant of and aware of that 
This is a shift and it's becoming more and more popular and it's becoming more and more unclear. Like, well, how much profit or how much of a private, what am I? Am I a private company or am I a, a nonprofit? Like, what am I? Probably the, the best example, like we talk about the social sector, the other term would be a, a social enterprise or social venture capitalists. Like it's all these, you know, the word is social, but the idea is you have a social mission. You're wanting to start an organization or you work for an organization that has a social mission. And I sense probably that's the scope, you know, that's a good boundary scope for the people in this classroom is that you have some sort of vision or idea of an organization that has a, a social mission. Whether the social is the arts, whether the social is healthcare, whether the social is some sort of international context, there's a social component to the organization that you want to start. Even if you want to start a private company, there's probably some social component to it. So we're going to transition to theories of the nonprofit sector, and I'm going to give you a crash course on the social sciences. So typically when we think of science, we think of the hard sciences like physics and chemistry and biology. Well, there's this whole subsector called the social sciences. It's history, economics, political science, psychology, sociology. And with the social sciences, basically they use the same tools that the hard sciences, that the natural sciences use, but they apply them to society, to how society functions, how society operates, and they make predictions using the scientific method. The basic premise of how the social sciences work is that depending on what discipline you come from, you have a certain orientation or focus. Just like in biology, it's an orientation towards plant life and life in general, whereas within physics, it's about the mechanics of the world, sort of gravity and all the sort of the mechanisms of the world. Well, same within the social sciences, you have orientations. So history looks at society from a certain perspective. Psychologists look at society from a certain perspective. And they all have these theories. They all have these theories of how life works, and then they employ methods to test those theories. So this is sort of social science big picture. And these theories operate on two levels. The first is a macro level, a macro level understanding of the world. So it explains the origins, for in terms of the nonprofit sector, it explains the origins and the development of the sector. So it's big picture, like how did all this come about and where is it going and, and how is it developing? And the second part is a micro, like very individual level, like on, on a small scale level, like behavior within the sector, like why do people volunteer? Or what is it that would cause people to use the services or not use the services provided? So you have people who are trying to explain large scale questions about the sector as a whole, and then a lot of people trying to explain the micro level aspects, the day to day aspects of the sector, of the nonprofit sector. So we're gonna pull back and look at sort of the macro, the origins of the development of the sector. And what's interesting is that each discipline sort of looks at the sector from a different perspective or a different orientation. The first would be historians. So if you're a historian in the room, your orientation is to think about, you know, who are the critical actors or the movements or it's like, what were the, the key events in history that led to the origins and the development 
development of the nonprofit sector. And we learned about at least the nonprofit sector in the U.S. was a key actor was Andrew Carnegie. Like he was a key historical figure that led to sort of the emergence of the modern day nonprofit sector. But then there are also critical events, like we talked about Reagan in the 1980s, initiated a lot of changes that shifted the trajectory of the nonprofit sector. So the historian is going to look at what is sort of the key actors and events and movements that shape the sector. The economist, if you're an economist in this room, you think all explanation of society can be explained through supply and demand. So who was supplying the nonprofit organizations or services, and was there an increase in supply of the nonprofit sector, or was there a decrease in supply? Like, was the government decreasing its supply, and so then the nonprofit stepped up to increase the supply, or was there an increase in demand that sort of led to the emergence of the nonprofit sector? So the economist is going to look at the sector from a supply and demand perspective. The political scientists, again, these are all social science orientations, but different explanations for the emergence of the sector. The political scientist is going to look at systems of government. So some of you ask, like, is the nonprofit profit sector in the U.S. unique, or does it exist in other countries around the world, or is it, you know, how is it different in other places? And so the political scientists would say, well, there's certain systems of governing that foster a nonprofit sector, and there's other systems of governing that basically suppress something like the nonprofit sector. So, like in China, there is a nonprofit sector, but it's very different because the government basically says we're going to provide all the needs of the people, and there's not going to be a need for the nonprofit sector. Or you have other places where the government isn't stable enough to sustain a nonprofit sector, but they rely on international nonprofits coming in, and so in a sense, they don't even have a government, so they rely on international nonprofits profits coming in to provide needs that really the government should be providing. Like even things like electricity or running water, the government's not providing it. So external nonprofits come in and provide it. So political scientists look at, you know, their explanation for the nonprofit sector is it's all about the systems of government that are in place within the countries. The psychologists would say, well, it's really about individual level motivation and behavior. So if you have people who are altruistic and have these benevolent orientations, that that's going to lead to the emergence of a nonprofit sector or an altruistic sector. It's based on individual level factors, not systems of government, not supply and demand, but individual psychology is going to drive the emergence. And the last would be sociologists would look at sort of general social structures that exist. Like, are there like social movements that are existing that sort of lead to the emergence of entire sectors within the nonprofit arena? And so they would say, or is there structural inequality that exists that sort of pushes people to advocate for more social sector types of organizations. And so the important thing of understanding all these different social science perspectives is that depending on what your particular orientation is, that's going to be how you view the sector and how you view sort of how the sector began and how it develops. And I'm curious just in, in this classroom to know which social science perspective do you most resonate with? Okay, so this is helpful, this is interesting. We have most of the people are either psychologists or sociologists, very few economists, some historians. But what's helpful with this is not everyone looks at the world from the same perspective or sort of values or privileges certain things over the other. And it shapes the way not only you look at the sector, but also how you see the motivations or development. So the political scientists are going to be more interested in focusing 
on the government's involvement with the nonprofit sector. The sociologist is probably going to be more interested in sort of social movements and civic action and sort of these large-scale social movements, whereas the psychologist is going to be more focused on individuals and individual behavior and, and motivation. But it's important to sort of recognize the value and importance of each. So I'll conclude with this, is sort of why did the social sector emerge, or why did the nonprofit sector emerge? And there's some key explanations for this. But basically, some of them was that they, they address the underrepresented or marginalized. So in a sense, the government provides all these human services to people that are these public goods. But there's some people, some sectors of society, that are on the margins or on the fringes, and they get missed, or they don't get the services. And so the nonprofit steps in to meet these people, whether it be because of financial needs or because of social stigma. So if you think of like, let's say, orphans. A lot of orphans are not in part of a traditional family structure, and so they have needs that it's hard for them to receive government benefits. And so nonprofits start up these orphanages to help these people who are on the margins. But it's also even people groups, so if you think that LGBTQ community, that they're not represented by government law. Like, so there's no discrimination laws against people based on sexual orientation. And so you have nonprofits, advocacy organizations that start up for people on, in fringe communities or marginalized or underrepresented communities. Also, it's emerged to address long-term problems. So if you're a politician and you're sort of wanting to pass a bill in government, you're not going to pass a bill to address climate change because that's like a 60-year horizon initiative. You want to pass a bill for something that's going to provide immediate results. And so any type of long-term problem, government doesn't really want to take that on because it's not politically efficient for them to do that. And so that's where nonprofits step in. And then also to address emergent issues, like Orlando Change is an example of this. Like to rapidly raise money the government won't be able to do it, but a nonprofit can just set up shops, set up a website, and quickly raise money in a much more efficient way. And then another one is to incubate social programs. So like pre-K, you know, you know, kindergarten pre-K, that was started by nonprofits saying, well, let's try this out in communities to have a pre-K program. And they've run it and it's been successful. And so now the government is going to take it on and say, okay, yeah, more and more schools are going to have pre-K programs. So it's, an, it's a way to test, test new programs out. We'll end there. And on Thursday, come be ready to join a group that's going to start a nonprofit. So come with your ideas for a nonprofit. I'm going to put some readings on Canvas. They're short readings, but they're important for starting the nonprofit.